sort of an awkward passage we're, we're, we're going through tonight. You know, the beauty of ex, expositorily preaching your way through a book is you never have to wonder, okay, what am I preaching this week? Like, no, you're just preaching the next thing. Um, the weird part about that is you don't just get to skip things. Um, so we take them as we come, and I lined up a schedule of guys to teach for the summer, which has been going great, by the way. Thank you guys to those of you who've, who've taught so far. Thank you to those of you who are teaching uh, in the next few weeks. Um, but I just didn't have the heart to give this passage to anyone else. Um, yeah, it really was. I thought of giving it to you, um, but, but I just didn't have the heart to, to say, hey man, I need you to preach 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. And so that's what we're going through tonight because last week we went up through verse 8, uh, so tonight we're starting in verse 9. Uh, so if you want to flip in your Bibles there and get ready, uh, go ahead and do that. So I wanted to start tonight by asking you guys a question. Do you, you guys have any pet peeves? I do too. Ask Trisha. I have a ton of pet peeves. When people chew with their mouths open, that drives me up a wall. Um, right or wrong, there's no, like, that's not a morally right or wrong thing. It just bothers me. You, can, you guys know people who don't know how to whisper? You know these people, they're, they're sitting in church and they lower the volume on their voice, but they never actually shift it to a whisper. So it still like hits your eardrums just as loudly and you can hear everything they're saying. People who think it's normal for grown adults to consume milk as a beverage. That's one of my pet peeves. Don't judge me, Tina. I'm not saying these are right. I'm just saying these are things that bother me. Yeah, like I said, believe it or not, I have a lot of pet peeves. Ask Trisha. Um, she'll, she'll be the first to tell you. But one of my bigger pet peeves is when people see something that's different for two different people or for two different groups of people and automatically assume that it's bad. Just because something's different, they assume that it's bad or unfair. <clears throat> Sometimes there are differences that, that are bad. There's differences that are unfair. But just because two different things are different, that doesn't mean that one thing is necessarily better than the other. You need more information to determine that. And if there's one thing people are short on nowadays, it's accurate information. Well, if you've read ahead in our passage tonight, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, you'll see that we're talking about biblical roles, specifically the biblical role of women. And that's a touchy subject, because the Bible's role for women is different than the Bible's role for a man. But that's not a bad thing. The difference isn't bad just because the difference exists. God doesn't give a different roles, or God gives different roles to different people, but he never assigns a higher value to one role than he does to another. That's something that we humans do. We shouldn't do that, but that's something we do. But even though the text tonight focuses on women, there's some really practical stuff in here that we can all learn from, guys included. So don't think you're getting the night off. And so my fair warning to you is that this passage gets weird by the time we get to the end of it, uh, which is really the reason why I'm up here instead of, of someone else. Not that I think, you know, I can handle it better than they could. I just didn't, like I said, I didn't have the heart to give it to anybody else and make them do it. I've spent you know, a handful of hours scattered for the last few months. I, I've known I'm doing this all summer, and it's one of those things, like, I guess I gotta look at this, then you read it, and like, I'll, I'll work on this next week. Um, <laughs> but I, I still can't say that I'm 100% sure what it's saying by the time we get to verse 15. So buckle up. And ladies, if I may, please give me the benefit of the doubt. 
I've gone through great lengths and pains to make sure I'm not going to say anything stupid, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to. <laughs> Just don't, don't equate what I'm saying with what the Bible's saying. Like, obviously, the Bible doesn't say anything stupid. And so if I say something stupid, give me the benefit of the doubt. I didn't mean to. Um, is that fair? Yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs> and so this, this devotion is probably going to be a little longer uh, than, than what we've been doing this summer, um, just because of the nature of what we're talking about and how much there is to cover here. But that still doesn't actually give us much time to dig into this, to do it in one sitting. So I encourage you to take this passage and study it for yourself, which is what I encourage you to do every week, by the way. So um, there's that. Let's read 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. It says, In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the, women, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Like I said, it gets a little strange. But anytime, anytime it looks like the words of God are getting a little strange, there's a reason for it. So we'll just break this passage down as best we can. Sound good? All right, well, first off, notice that verse 9 starts with, in like manner also. So this is just a continuation of what we see in the previous verse. 1 Timothy 2.8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So it's talking about how men pray in verse 8, and the conversation shifts to women in verse 9. But the idea that remains consistent throughout this passage uh, is that what's, what's on the inside matters more than what's on the outside. In verse 8, yes, men are to pray, and they're to lift up holy hands. That's an outside thing. But they're to do it without wrath and doubting. That's an inside thing. And we'll see this common thread as we dig into point number one, your adorning. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 10. Um, again, it says, In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So what does adorning mean? Or what does it mean to adorn? Well, we can see that if we look at Isaiah 61, verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. So a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. She puts them on. So to adorn yourself with something just means that you put that thing on yourself. But it also involves the idea that it's put on to be displayed. A bride doesn't, ad- doesn't put jewels on to hide them. She puts them on to display them and show them off. So when you adorn yourself, you're putting something on so that other people can see it. So what should you be adorned with? Well, this passage specifically talks about ladies uh, and that they should adorn themselves with uh, certain things. But there's some good stuff in here for all of us. Primarily, the discussion of adorning here is talking about modest apparel. And this is the only time a form of the word modest shows up in Scripture, but we all have an idea of what modesty means. It just means appropriate or in good taste. 
And yes, ladies, that means when you're deciding what to wear, you should make sure your parts aren't showing. To have your parts showing would be immodest. That's, that's important. But let's not limit our understanding of modesty to just keeping things covered. Because the thought continues with shamefacedness and sobriety. So what is shamefacedness? Well, it doesn't mean you have to be ashamed of your face and hide it while you're in public. There are people who think that way, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. There are religions where that becomes the norm and their cultural practices. We'll see as we continue, the context here is about your attitude. And shamefacedness is more of an attitude than it is a clothing style. You know, I can see the commercial like, what are you going to wear this summer? Shamefaced. Like, that's... <laughs> see, I, I said I'm going to say stupid things. Um... But anyways, when you're shamefaced, you aren't seeking to be the center of attention. You're not trying to get everyone to look at you. And sadly, that's the way the world operates. People make their lives revolve around how to get more followers and how to get everyone looking at them in their face book. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't come as a surprise to you that we shouldn't be living like that. Our job is to get people looking at the Lord, not looking at us. The way we live our lives should reflect that. We shouldn't be trying to get people to focus on us. We should be trying to get people to focus on him. That's what our adorning should be. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So our reverence and our fear should be directed toward God. And people should see that in your life and the way you live your life. This is especially true in ministry because God can use you to do some pretty cool things in people's lives if you're walking with him. But when people start looking at you because of the ministry you're doing, you should always be quick to point them directly to the Lord. That's shamefacedness. And then there's sobriety. And that's not just the absence of drunkenness, though that is a helpful understanding. Being sober or having sobriety is being clear-headed and aware. Paul tells Festus in Acts 26, 25, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. So Paul says being sober is the opposite of being mad. He's like, I'm not mad, I'm speaking sober. When you're sober, you're in your right mind. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to control and guide your thought process rather than other stuff, whether that other stuff is alcohol or substances, propaganda, or just worldly thinking. So what you adorn yourself with has more to do with your inward attitude than it does your outward appearance. And sure, your outward appearance matters. That's why it mentions modest apparel. But what matters more is why you're wearing modest apparel. That's the shamefacedness and sobriety part. The passage goes on to describe what, what you shouldn't be adorned with, which is broided or braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly array. Now, that doesn't mean you can't wear those things or do your hair however you want. Please, do your hair however you want. You just have to ask, or, but remember, adorning carries the idea of putting things on for display. So you have to ask why you're wearing those things. Is it to get other people to look at you? Because if that's the reason, you should probably question whether or not you should wear them. There's nothing wrong with dressing nice or looking good. But what do you want people to see when they look at you? Do you want them to see how awesome you look? Or do you want them to see how awesome God is? That's the question you have to ask. That's why verse 10 goes on to add that you should be adorned with good works. Because people around you can see your good works. So if you put them on display and give credit to God when people notice them, you're directing people's attention to where it should be. You're pointing them to the Lord. That's becoming to women who profess godliness. 
which just means that's appropriate for those women to do. So ladies, are you spending more time adorning yourself with stuff that is your outward appearance, or are you spending more time adorning yourself with good works that you can use to point people to Jesus? I have to ask, because that's what this passage is mainly aimed at asking. And that makes sense, if you're honest, because typically, typically, women spend a lot of time on how they look in comparison to guys. That's because guys are ugly. (laughs) No matter how hard we try, we don't, like, it's not going to help. So we don't even bother. As long as we're presentable and we don't physically give off an odor, (laughs) we'll go outside uh, for the world to see. But, But like I said, ladies, there's nothing wrong with looking good. But if you're more concerned with being pretty than you are with demonstrating the light of Christ by living the right way, then there's something wrong with your priorities. That's specifically what this passage is getting at. 1 Peter 3 communicates something similar. Uh, It says in verse 3, Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. So regardless of what you choose to wear, your adorning should come from within, not from what you put on the outside. Does that make sense? All right. But guys, don't miss how this passage applies to you. Even if you don't spend a bunch of time worrying about how you look in a mirror. I know I don't, as though it's not clear. (laughs) We're always tempted to worry about how how our lives look on the outside rather than worrying about how our lives are on the inside. Remember from our study in Colossians earlier this year, Colossians 3.22 says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Because we're all too often tempted to be men pleasers, to do a good job while others are watching and to be lazy when they're not, to live a life free from sin in the public eye, but to keep our favorite sins Uh, in our private life. We should be more focused on what's inside than what's on the outside. God is. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And if God looks on the heart, we should be more concerned about our hearts than we are on what our lives look like to other people. Let your adorning come from within, where the Holy Spirit lives. Don't let your adorning come from putting on the things of this world. I put it on your sheet this way. Looking good on the outside is fine, but having the right heart attitude on the inside is critical. All right, that's the first point, and that was the easy part. That shouldn't be controversial, but this passage becomes controversial for people because they don't like it when women are given specific instructions about what to wear. And even though this passage isn't telling them what they are allowed to wear or not to wear, people act like it is because they want to be mad. Again, it's one of my pet peeves. But if you thought that was controversial, we're digging into the second point. Number two, your authority. And that's in verses 11 and 12. And this is where things get a little bit weirder for some people. I'll read it again. Let Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Because the tendency is for people to just look at verse 11 and think that the Bible is saying for women to be silent. You can see that that kind of thought in cultures 
throughout history and even in the world today, you know, women don't talk unless you're spoken to. Like, well, that's dumb. That's not what this is getting at, and it doesn't say women are to be silent. It says women are to learn in silence. And this is very specific, and there's a very specific reason for it. And the reason has to do with the roles that God assigns to men and women, specifically in the context of marriage. And if you ask me, I think it has to do more with the husband doing his job than it does the wife doing her job. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. Might clear it up a little bit. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And there's the key to understanding this. A husband's role in marriage is to help his wife learn. And if he's not doing that, he's not doing his job. Ephesians 5 makes, makes his role perfectly clear. Uh, Ephesians 5, through 28 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Those are the roles that God laid out for the family because the roles of husbands and wives pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. Jesus is responsible for sanctifying and cleansing the church with his word. So to fulfill that picture, a husband is responsible for sanctifying and cleansing his wife with God's word. So the husband is responsible for not only leading his wife, but for teaching his wife and helping her grow. And because God laid out those roles for the family, the roles he lays out for the church are only going to reinforce that. God is not the author of confusion, so his structure for the local church isn't going to interfere with his structure for the family. Meaning in church, a wife shouldn't go around her husband who is her authority as she learns. Meaning she can't just cut out the middleman uh, and, and, and go her own way. She can't go to her husband's authority like a pastor to do her learning. Because if she did that, she'd be letting her husband off the hook from doing his job. And that's not okay because then you're not providing the picture through your marriage relationship. That doesn't mean a woman has to be silent 100% of the time. It's just in the context of learning in a public setting. If she has a question, she's supposed to ask her husband, but not in public so he gets embarrassed if he doesn't have the answer. No, at home, in private, she should ask her questions to her husband, who is then duty-bound to find the answers for her. Maybe he needs to study. Maybe he needs to get help from his pastors, but it's his responsibility to make sure his wife gets her answers. That responsibility falls to him and no one else. Don't let him off the hook, ladies. Like 1 Corinthians 14 says, God is not the author of confusion. So when God assigns these roles in the order in which learning is to take place, we know that the reason why he did that is to avoid confusion. The, woman, the wife submits to her authority as the husband submits to his. And if we try to skirt that order in any way, then we're going to end up causing confusion. 
For example, how can a husband be leading his wife if she's growing and learning faster than him? So by making sure a woman's growth is through her husband, we, can, we make sure that the husband is growing at least as much as his wife is. The point isn't to slow your growth down, ladies. The point's to make sure your husband isn't shirking his responsibility and to make sure that he's growing. Because if you're doing all the growing and he's not able to lead you, then again, your marriage isn't picturing the relationship between Christ and the church. And I get it. We're the college and young adult group at the well. So a lot of you ladies aren't married. So what should you do? Who's responsible for your growth? Well, that becomes a tricky question. Understand that the father, that your father has a similar responsibility to, to his children that the husband does to his wife. So if you have a godly father, my recommendation is to allow him the chance to help you learn. But I get that that's not always an option. Maybe your father doesn't go to church the same place you do. Maybe he doesn't believe the same things you do. Maybe he isn't interested in helping you find the answers to your questions. Maybe he's not even in the picture. Well, the other option is if you're, if you're dating a godly guy, well, you can start to ask him to help you learn, but you need to be really careful that you're not relying on him as though he's your husband because that creates an unhealthy uh, environment. Acting like you're married before you're actually married is it's not going to be healthy for your growth. But if you're starting to consider marrying this guy, you should, you should want to make sure that he's going to be able to lead you the way a husband needs to lead a wife. And so if you can start asking him some questions to see how he, he leads you, that's way more important than how much money he makes. I'll tell you that. If you want, if you want the right kind of marriage, that's the kind of thing you want to figure out ab- about your guy before, before you answer the question. But as an adult woman living on your own, it's not always easy to know where to turn for help in your growth because you aren't going to get a pastor to meet one-on-one with you to help you learn. At least I hope not because that's just a recipe for gossip and blame that you don't want on you, your pastor, or your church. Um, But men aren't the only ones who are allowed to teach. Take a look at Titus 2, 3 through 4. It says, The aged, aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. So there's your biblical answer. The aged women, meaning women who are a little farther down the spiritual maturity train than you, they are to teach you. That's why we have stuff like discipleship, where you can sit down with another person and learn, learn the Bible and learn the Bible doctrine. Because regardless of your gender or where you're at in life, if you're a part of a Bible-believing church, God will provide for your growth, whether that's through your father, your husband, or, or ladies. So it's actually pretty simple, and I put it on your sheet like this. Ladies, allow the men in your life, if applicable, to do their job. Don't let them off the hook. Don't let them just get fat and eat potato chips all day. Like, <laughs> make, them, make them do their God-given responsibility. And men... Do your job if you're married and prepare for it if you're not. It's pretty simple. So men, again, do your job. If you're married, make sure you continue learning so you can answer your wife's questions because if she's wanting to grow and you're not helping her, you're a bad husband. That's, that's as simple as it is. It's your responsibility. Uh, nobody else is going to pick up the slack. But the good news is you can stop being a bad husband anytime you want and start doing better. So if she asks you a question you don't know the answer to, Get off your butt and go figure it out. Study the Bible. Ask for help. Do what you have to do. 
Sure, it's easier to just keep eating potato chips and watching Netflix, but stop being lazy. Do your job. How can you ever expect to be used in ministry if you can't be trusted with your basic primary ministry to your wife? And guys, if that's convicting for you, know that it's convicting for me. And unmarried men, prepare for doing that job now, before you even get married. Spend time studying God's word and meditating on it so that when the time comes when you have a wife, you have something to offer in terms of helping her learn and grow because you know ahead of time what your role will be in marriage. So if you want to be married, prepare for it. And if you're dating a godly girl now, don't just pretend like you're her husband. Don't step in and say, well, I'm in charge because that's what husbands do. Well, you're, you're not a husband. But be ready to help her with her growth when she's ready to begin trusting you with that. Does that make sense? When it comes right down to it, God's designed roles are pretty simple. But too often we humans like to question the roles God gives us. We question whether or not they're fair and we put too much value on one role over the other, even though God never assigns that kind of value. So why do we care why God gives us the roles he gives us? Honest question, shouldn't it be enough that the roles are what God says they are? Shouldn't we just submit to them and obey what his word says? He's the creator of the universe, right? I think we can give him the benefit of the doubt and assume he knows what's best for us. We should live our lives, we should live those roles out because God says we should, but God also explains why he created those roles the way he did, and that's point number three, your awareness. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 15. And look, we we really don't have time to dig too deeply into this part, and even if we did, I'm not sure I could tell you what what verse 15 is saying with 100% confidence, but the passage gets a little weird here. It seems like the goal is to make you aware of why God established the roles the way he did. Let's read it again. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And we've already established the context of, of, of the, the larger passage, and it starts with the, this chunk of it starts with the word for. So it's explaining why the roles are set up the way verses 11 and 12 describe. And it all has to do with Adam and Eve. That's what verses 13 and 14 are getting at. And we don't have time to go back and read the entire story tonight, so I encourage you to read through Genesis chapters 1 through 3 tonight if you'd like to dig into this more. But the short version is God created Adam and gave him a job to do, to fill the earth with sons of God. But Adam couldn't do that on his own, so God created Eve by taking part of Adam, one of his ribs, and creating her from that. But the serpent, Satan, beguiled Eve, he deceived her, into thinking it was okay to eat from the one tree God forbid them from eating from. She ate it, and then she took it to Adam, and then he ate it. But Adam wasn't beguiled. He wasn't deceived the way Eve was. Adam knew full well what it was doing, which, every time I read that, I'm just reminded, like, that, that seems like so much worse, that Adam knew what he was doing when he did it. So Eve was tricked and she sinned, and Adam wasn't tricked, but he sinned anyways. And it's because of this that God established the roles of husband and wives, because sin was in the picture now. Prior to this event, Eve's only role was to help Adam populate the earth with sons of God. But God sets up some clear boundaries and roles after this happened. And if I'm not mistaken, Theology Roundtable recently discussed this topic. And so if you're interested, go listen to the recent episodes of that. Um, because they get into way more detail than I have time to tonight. But look at Genesis 3, 16 through 17. It says, Under the woman, 
he said, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. So the husband's authority over his wife was a direct consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve. That's the simple understanding of 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. But verse 15 gets a little strange. The pronouns in verse 15 make it difficult to parse exactly what's being said and who is being talked about. And like I said, I'm not 100% sure I know what it says, but I think I have a decent idea. And so when, it, when I say it's confusing, like let me explain it this way. Look at the pronouns. Can you pop up the... the yeah, so... These were supposed to have highlighting on them, but ProPresenter screwed up when we imported the PowerPoint, so um, I'm just going to use this little laser pointer instead. Um, so the, the pronouns get confusing. You've got she and you've got they. Those are two different pronouns, and in English, probably most other languages that have pronouns, pronouns always refer back to a noun that's been mentioned before, or they refer to a noun that will be mentioned soon. So what are those two pronouns referring to? That's, that's the tricky part. Who is the she referring to? Well, it can't be referring to women, because women is, is a plural noun, whereas she is, is singular. So that's not, that's not really an option. Could it be Eve from verses 13 and 14? Well, that's possible, because that's singular but it could also be the woman from verses 11 and, and a woman from verse 12. That's talking about the same, that's like a, the woman representing women in general. So that, that is an option. And who is the they referring to? Um, go to the next slide, if you would. I think my circles made it in there, yeah. So who's the they referring to? Well, could be referring to the women from verse 9 and 10. Could be referring to Adam and Eve as a couple, from verse 13, it could be referring to the woman and the man, speaking of women and men as, a, as married couples. Um, and in a weird way, it could also be referring to children, but I don't think that makes much sense because childbearing is not a noun. Childbearing is a form of a verb. So ch children are never actually mentioned anywhere, so it would be weird if a pronoun existed that didn't have a noun that it was pointing to. So you've got she and they, pointing at any, like a couple different things potentially. And even if you could figure those pronouns out, what is she being saved from in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety? We know that's not salvation from hell because that wouldn't be conditioned on the they continuing in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Salvation is, from hell is by grace through faith alone, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. All you have to do is put your trust in the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for you, and he gives you eternal life. It's, it's simple. So that's not conditioned on anyone continuing. So is she, what is she being saved from? Is she being saved from deception? That's, that's, a, that's a theory some people have. Is she being saved from where am I at here? Is she being saved from, from silence that we were talking about before? Is she being saved from not having authority, which is the overall context of the passage? 
I encourage you to dig through those possibilities. Consider the combinations of the pronouns and the implications of each one. I've spent more time than I care to admit doing that, and I'm still not sure, but I'll lay out what makes the most sense to me. Um, and then, you got that last one on there? Okay. So, maybe this will help. Given the context of the passage, I see verses 13 and 14 as like a, like a parenthetical. It seems like it's a separate thought that Paul put in there to explain why God set up the roles that he mentioned in verses 11 and 12. So it's just providing more information about what he, what he said right here. And then verse 15 seems like it's a continuation of the discussion on those roles, about the woman having to submit to her husband's authority. He gets to verse 15, and it says, notwithstanding, so nevertheless or regardless, she, the woman, speaking in general from verses 11 and 12, shall be saved from, from not having a position of authority by having children. So in having children, the woman takes on the role of a leader and teacher in her home while the husband maintains his role as her teacher and leader. So a woman isn't saved from hell by having children. That's ridiculous. There's, women, there's religions that teach that, and it's obviously not true. But God understands that we humans like to assign, certain, or assign value to certain roles over others, even though we shouldn't. So he reassures women here that if they want to lead and want to teach with authority in their homes, well, just have children. That's obviously in the context of a home because we've already discussed aged women teaching younger women through discipleship in the church. But if a woman wants to have that type of role in her home, all she has to do is have children. But then you have the second part of the verse. If, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety... And I think the point of that is that the woman is only going to be able to properly exercise her authority over her children if both the husband and the wife are continuing to follow and learn, or continuing in their walk with the Lord in the right way and doing their jobs. That's the, the faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So if the husband and wife are both doing their jobs, the woman can properly exercise authority in teaching her children. So if they're not doing their jobs, the husband and wife, then they get all, all sort of messed up and, and causes all kinds of confusion. So women, when and if you have children, you're free to lead and teach them so long as you're continuing to follow and learn from your husband. In doing that, you'll be properly demonstrating all of God's family relationship pictures for your children and for people who look at your family. Does that make sense? Yes. That's, that's my understanding of what the verse is saying. I actually talked to two of, of the pastors on staff about this verse. One of them agreed with what I just said, and one of them had a different idea. So I'm pretty confident saying that I'm not sure. <laughs> but I think, that's, I think that's what it's driving at. That's what makes sense given the overall context of the passage being the, the role of a husband and the role of a wife. And so I know I went a little bit long with this one. Um, this passage was a little weird, so I thought it was, I thought the going a little longer was worth it. Um, but I'm not going to belabor the conclusion. God assigns roles to men and women. We might not like it, but he does, and it's our job to stick to them. Uh, we do that because God cares more about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. And at the end of the day, he cares way more about our attitude and our submission to his word than he does about which role we live out. So, we should start there. Focus on getting yourself right before the Lord. 
right on the inside because when you do that, it makes it easier to live out your relationship roles. And when you come to a weird passage like this one in scripture, what do you do with it? Do you ignore it and move on? Like I tried to do all summer, but wasn't able to. Don't do that. Don't get mad at the Bible. Don't look for a simpler translation. You don't want to do that. You'll miss out on what God's words say. Or do you study and seek help from your spiritual leaders and friends when you need it? Because that's obviously the right answer. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the times when it, when it even confuses us because it makes us stop and think. It makes us stop and think and, and desire to get your heart and desire to get your words into our lives. And so God, I just pray that as we, as we look at these, this passage tonight, Lord, I just pray that we would take it seriously. I pray that we would want to live our lives the way the Bible prescribes so that we can be effective ministers for you. And God, with what little time we have left tonight, Lord, just encourage, encourage and uh, motivate us to have uh, helpful discussions um, about, about these things. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.